the ESPN studios at Pier 17 in the Seaport District of New York City. This is Greeny with Mike Greenberg on ESPN Radio. You can also listen and watch the show on the ESPN app. All right, hour number two, Dan Grassa in for Greeny on this Thursday morning. 98.7 ESPN will be with you tomorrow as well. Same time as always. And we're presented by Progressive Insurance. Insurance for motorcycles, boats, and RVs. For protection on the road and on the water. See how much you can save at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and progressive.com. NBA, the first hour. We'll switch gears. Do a little football because the Giants are back at it this week. Remember, last time we saw the Giants, they actually lost the game, believe it or not, to the Seattle Seahawks out there in the Great Northwest. That game feels like it was four years ago, but it's okay. You know, at the time, we said it's it's no big deal. You know, Giants are allowed one of these games, one of these performances. They're not going to win every single one. And eventually, there's going to be a game that gets away from them, and they made a couple of mistakes, and, you know, the Seahawks won it. No harm, no foul. 6-2 and two at the break, 6-2 and two at the halfway point, you sign up for it. You're okay with it. But you wonder, even though you are coming off of a loss, you just hope that when they step out onto that field on Sunday, off of the bye week, is this going to be a completely different Giants team than the one we saw before the bye? You hope not. You know, you don't want there to be a first half of the season, second half of the season Giants team. You hope that that consistency kind of carries over even after the week off here. And the dangerous part about it is, as you look at the schedule, and we all get sucked into playing that game, you look at Houston, you look at Detroit, you see a couple of bad football teams on the schedule, teams that are coming into your building, by the way. So you're like, oh, hey, all right, Texans at home, Lions at home, those are wins. Those were games that you probably chalked up as wins even when before you even played a game. When you were trying to be as optimistic as possible about the Giants and you were trying to figure out, all right, how many games can this team win? Even though they don't have a lot of talent and they're breaking in a new coaching staff and a new regime, I mean, but those are a couple of games that they should at least be able to put up a good fight and should be able to win. All right, and now we've gotten through half the season, and you know what? It still rings true. The only difference is the Giants are a lot better than we thought they were going to be back in the summertime. You know, Texans aren't any good. The Lions aren't any good. Combined, they're 1-6 on the road. Giants should win both of these football games. And the Giants have an advantage going forward, too, I think, for the second half of the season. Because we'll get to the Jets in a little bit. Both of these teams legitimately should have their eyes set on the playoffs. And if I would have said that to you back in July, you probably would have thought I needed to be drug tested. Maybe I still do. Who knows? But the Giants and Jets right now, the expectations have changed to where... You're a Giant fan, you're expecting to make the playoffs. You're a Jet fan, you're expecting to make the playoffs. Giants have it a little bit easier here the rest of the way. What I mean by that is the NFC is awful. It's awful. A lot worse shape than you have over on the AFC side of things. And the AFC, I would say right now, if you want to handicap it a little bit, I would say there's nine teams right now, including the Jets, for seven playoff spots. In the NFC... If I look at that side of the ledger right now, based on the football that we've witnessed for the first nine weeks of the season, I don't know if I could give you seven playoff-worthy teams, to be quite honest with you. Because I think what you're going to have happen, and again, this is the beauty of the NFL, maybe the beauty and the curse of the NFL, is that I think the NFC North is only getting one team in. 
I think the NFC South is only getting one team in. And I didn't think in a million years that that would be the case. Because from where I'm sitting right now, I think the Packers are cooked. You know? I think they're cooked. And you can only play that, well, Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers thing so long. Is that even though things are breaking down around him, that you still expected him to be able to elevate the level of his team eventually and win their share of games. Well, that hasn't happened yet. They've lost five in a row. If that was going to happen, don't you think that the win would have come a lot sooner than this and they wouldn't have allowed their season to essentially spiral? So right now, Minnesota might be the only team going to the playoffs as a division champ. In the NFC South, that division stinks. You don't even have a team that's 500 in that division. And yeah, I guess you still have to give the slight edge to Tampa Bay because they got Tom Brady and a lot of other guys on that team who have won Super Bowls. But imagine if Tampa Bay can't even hold off Atlanta, a team that's supposed to be rebuilding this year, that gave Marcus Mariota the quarterback job and said, all right, Marcus, you're a placeholder. Go out there, run around, win a couple of games, but you know we're still looking to draft our quarterback of the future. I don't think the kid from Cincinnati is the quarterback of the future. So right there, that's only two divisions, two spots. You're not getting any wild cards. So essentially in the East, you got Philly, Dallas Giants, and in the West... Seattle, which has put themselves in position, and I think San Francisco. San Francisco is just going to get better, I think. Now that McCaffrey is in the fold, more acclimated in the offense, they found ways, they're going to continue to find ways to get him incorporated. I still think when push comes to shove, neutral field, you know, play out in the street, or San Francisco is the best team in that division. Rams are done. They're done. This is a team that is broken down. They went all in last year to win a Super Bowl. They won that Super Bowl, but the depth is just not there, you know? And now you've seen everything crumble in that offensive line, which was awful that first game against the Buffalo Bills and has only gotten worse. Now Matthew Stafford's in the concussion protocol. So two teams that we thought were going to be pretty good this year in the NFC, Rams and Packers, I think they're both done. Season's over. So if you're the Giants right now, you look at it and you say, all right, we should finish this thing off. I think you might even get it. How about this? I think you might even get a team in the playoffs on the NFC side of things that's sub 500. It might even be a division champion in the NFC South if Tampa can't right the ship. But that's how bad the NFC is. So if you're the Giants and if you're starting to look ahead and say, what is it going to take? What are we going to need? I think 10 is the magic number. Get to 10 and then you can put your feet up for New Year's, toast a happy New Year, and get ready to look at possible playoff opponents for the Giants. Get to 10. All right, so if you take care of business these next two weeks against Houston and Detroit, you're 8-2. and two. Now you got to find a way to win two more games out of the last seven. I certainly think that's feasible. At Dallas on Thanksgiving. Then you got Washington at home. Philly at home. At Washington. At Minnesota, home Indy on New Year's Day, and at Philadelphia. There's two wins there? I sure as hell think so. I mean, you got two against Washington. You split, at the very least, you say you split two with Washington. And then you beat the crummy Colts and Jeff Saturday on New Year's Day. I feel bad knocking Jeff Saturday because Jeff Saturday used to come on our pregame show with the Jets. We'd go around the league with him. Buttle always used to say, Saturday on a Sunday. Remember that? Was he still coming on with us last year, Anthony? Or was that 
previous to last year. We had Damian Woody last year, right? Damian Woody, Tannenbaum. Tannenbaum. But oh. there, there have been so many guys over the years, though. We uh, John Fox was part of the rotation. Saturday was part of the rotation. And now both of them are on the Colts staff, isn't that right? That's correct. I think it was the pre- our pregame show which probably prepared them to go coach the Colts. So I think you're saying we have to be keep an eye out for Mike Tannehill as a GM again, which we should be anyway. He's a great guy. Well, I mean, doesn't Thanks, it make doesn't it make sense? I mean, you mean to tell me the Colts GM Ballard that he's on firm footing there? I think that everything is lined up to where Mike Tannenbaum is going to be the GM of the Indianapolis Colts. It's going to be like one Jets pre one big Jets pregame show reunion in Indianapolis. Saturday's the coach. Tannenbaum's the GM. John Fox is there for support. I mean, it's it's all happening. It's all coming together. Seems like a foregone conclusion, by the way. Let's get Orlovsky on because he's probably going to be an OC at some point. So we should just add to our resume. Absolutely. 100%. Or, Orlovsky ever come on with us on the pregame? Is he one of those guys or no? Not that I remember. But no. Ray's been around longer than I have on the Jets. We ever do Orlovsky? I think he may have been an appearance or two. I think we need Buttle as the linebackers coach. No, he's not leaving. You sure about that? I'm positive. He can't leave. He loves you too much? I need Buttle. He's the reason they're winning this year. That's all he needs to do is to hear that. Then that, 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 that'll make his day. He's the reason that we have a new record for Don Trivia this year. <laughs> exactly. He aced. He aced the Joe Ferguson one last week. Who saw that coming? I, not me. Maybe because we did it in the second hour. Maybe he's better at the trivia when it's in the second hour. Right? Instead of like, maybe because we usually do it in what, in the second or the third segment. So that's like, it's still too early. He's still warming up. He's still getting into the flow of the show. Once he gets the chili inside him, then we're talking. Once the chili starts to take hold, right. Exactly. Because the chili usually is consumed. There's a little inside, uh, inside show here. The chili is consumed, I would say, maybe like 10 minutes within the 10 to 15 minute range before kickoff. Kickoff to the show. So, yeah, the Chili's got to do its work and all those things. But if you, seriously, if you're the Giants, you got to feel good about this situation. Right? And look, the Xavier McKinney news is unfortunate. That stinks. Um, you don't want that happening to anybody, and that's why hopefully it's a cautionary tale that before the Jets left town, Robert Sala preached to his guys, hey, no ATVs. You know, we already lost AVT. We don't need any more ATV injuries. But that's a big loss for the Giants. McKinney meant a lot to that defense. Um, is it something that they should overcome and still make the playoffs? Yes, but now other guys are going to have to step up the game. Dane Belton, come on down. You're on The Price is Right. It's your shot. And it sounds like Kenny Galladay is going to get an opportunity this week. I don't know how many snaps. Who do you think is going to get more targets the rest of the year? Kenny Galladay or Elijah Moore? Right? Because they've basically been targeted the same amount of times in the last month. You know, I mean, I know Galladay hasn't been, you know, able to play, but still, um, even when he is out there, they just don't look in his direction. You know, I mean, if you're the Giants, you might as look, you're paying this guy. I know it's not ideal, but you might as well use him. You might as well throw him the ball. Same thing with the Jets, with Elijah Moore. Giants need more from the passing game. This is not sustainable against good teams. You know, when you start to see that, when you see Dallas again on the schedule on Thanksgiving, you got a couple of games against Philly, you're going to go to Minnesota, you know, you got to get a passing game going. And that's still a little bit of a, not a little bit, it is still a concern. If you want to say big picture wise about this football team, you got Galladay here, you might as well put his talent to use. Here's one that I just thought of from a Giants perspective. 
Let's say Philadelphia's got the division wrapped up and they're really not playing for anything on that last Sunday of the season. You think they call off the dogs if the Giants need that game? Not the whole Doug Peterson disaster from a couple of years ago on that Sunday night game against uh, Washington or whatever it was. But legitimately, I mean, unless Philadelphia is trying for a 17-0 record, but let's say they have home field locked up, division champions, but the Giants might need the game to wrap up a spot. I don't think that it'll come down to it, but say they do. You think Philadelphia, rivalry opponent, will rest guys because the game doesn't mean anything for them, so maybe it makes the Giants' life easier? Same situation happened in 07 with the Patriots, right? Because they were going for undefeated. But the Patriots late, played. Late, and they played. Well, because Bel- Belichick always played. Yep. So They played that game. And the Gi- And remember, the Giants didn't even need that game. Giants didn't need that game. But yet the Giants played it out, too. And they say that that helped them when they saw the Patriots again a month later in a little thing called the Super Bowl. I don't know. Look, we got a lot of football still to play between now and then. But the bottom line is this. If you're a Giant fan, feel good. Feel good about where your team is at. Don't sleep on the Texans. Don't sleep on the Lions. Take care of business. You get to 8-2, you're going to the playoffs. You're going to the playoffs. A weekend that's not going to feature the Jets because they have a bye week this week after their very impressive triumph over the Buffalo Bills last week at MetLife Stadium. You think about this week, too, all four teams that are on the bye, Cincinnati, New England, Jets, and Baltimore, four teams with winning records. So you have some of the better teams in the NFL that aren't going to be featured this week. And, you know, realistically, before the season started, you looked at where you thought the Jets might be at the bye week. And... You know, I think it's gotten a lot of play. You got people like Brady Quinn saying that he thought they'd be 0 9. He's not the only one. A lot of people, you know, I heard that one thrown around a few places before the season started. Jets might be 0 9. I don't know where the wins are coming from. Look at this schedule. Oh, my goodness. But, well, they got a lot of wins. And I still think there's going to be more wins to come once they get back from the bye week, including the first test right out of the gate up in New England against the Patriots because they just saw him a couple of weeks ago. And to a man, they feel like that was one that they let get away. It was one that they felt they easily could have, should have won. Quarterback was a little reckless that day, yes, but you also had a questionable penalty that affected the momentum of that football game with the roughing the passer in JFM. But I think when you forecast you know, the Jets the rest of the season – You look at them almost like we just got done talking about the Giants. Like, what is it going to take to make sure that you got a playoff spot wrapped up? I I, I think that 10 is probably the safe number again, just to make sure that you get in. So are there four more wins on that schedule for the rest of the season? Eight games left. Can you go four and four the rest of the way? Now, you got the Bears at home. You got the Lions at home. You got the Jaguars at home. Those are three winnable games. Games you're going to be favored in. Games you're going to be expected to win. You going to win them all? Don't know. It's the NFL, right? Anything can happen. But you go up to New England. I don't think that that is some insurmountable task. Certainly the Jets can beat the Patriots. They're due to beat the Patriots. You know, 13 straight losses. I think they know each other well enough. They just played two weeks ago. So that's certainly a winnable type game. You know, and if you beat... See, the reality is with the Jets... If you beat the Buffalo Bills, what game do you look at on your schedule and say, that's not a winnable game? 
right? You beat the best team in the NFL. And they might have ruined Josh Allen in that game. And think about how that affects maybe the balance of power in the division the rest of the season. And and who knows? I mean, Josh Allen didn't practice yesterday. I don't know if he's going to play this week. Buffalo's got a tough game, by the way, against Minnesota. That's not easy. It's up in their place. But let's just say Josh Allen is just not right the rest of the season. Is that going to maybe curtail their chances of winning a division like they're supposed to do and, and, and go to a Super Bowl? Now suddenly is first place in play? In the AFC East, as crazy as that sounds, don't know. We really and truly do not know. But I'll tell you, this team's got a lot of confidence. I know that they lost a couple of key pieces already in in, in Hall and AVT. But they just showed you last week they can go out there and they can compete with anybody in the NFL. Because when you got a defense, which is playing as well as theirs, that's a top five defense in the NFL. Okay, defense travels. If you could run the ball... Like you showed that you could run the ball in that final drive when you iced the victory last week in the fourth quarter. That's another thing that travels well. And I think that it's pretty evident that's the formula they're going to take with them for the rest of the season. Defense, running game, and don't have the quarterback make any sort of egregious mistakes to where you're giving games away, like you saw against the Patriots a couple of weeks ago. That's what it's going to take for this team to play into January. Play into... Late January, if you will. Is that possible? Who knows? I know at this time last year, nobody thought the Cincinnati Bengals were going to the Super Bowl. Like if you said to them after, you know, nine games, hey, Bengals Super Bowl? They said, nah. You never know. And that's what the beauty of this league is. You know, and speaking of that formula, like not making the egregious throws and not playing reckless and that sort of thing. Zach Wilson was actually on with Rick and Dave in the morning a couple of days ago and was asked about, you know, whether or not he has to focus on just making the simple play. I don't really feel like I have to focus on it. I feel like I, you know, I look back at those ones in the Patriots game, you know, maybe my first year I did, but those ones were, in my opinion, so controllable, such boneheaded ones of, of you don't even need to think about it, just throw it away, there's nothing there. Or the second one of just making sure you throw the ball out of bounds uh, and not missing inside, you know. So for me, those are so controllable. I don't really feel like it's something I really need to put a, a big thought into. I just needed to make sure I was more detailed on it the next week and just making sure I, I don't have those dumb plays. And, you know, I felt like this, this next week was just making sure I'm decisive. And I think the, the turnover stuff kind of takes care, care of itself. And lastly, how high is the ceiling for this team? I don't know. You know, I think as a, as a unit, you know, we feel like obviously we can go all the way, but that's just because of the confidence and belief that we have in ourselves, you know, and nobody else is going to ever think that, you know, but for us, the mindset is just taking it one game at a time, like I said, and, you know, you don't get too far ahead of yourself. Not, nobody's sitting here saying, oh, we have to do this, we have to do this, because when you start setting expectations, things just don't go well. So for us, it's keeping the same mindset, focusing one game at a time, and just let the doubters keep doubting. Your bottom line, beat the Patriots. That's all you got to concern yourself with. Be smart during the bye week, don't have any ATV injuries, and come back in one piece and focus on beating the Patriots. Don't worry about the playoffs the rest of the season. Worry about the Patriots. 13. That's the number that they should plaster all over the facility in Florham Park before that game. 13. Baker's dozen. They're due. Mike in Manhattan is up next here on 98.7 ESPN. Michael, how are you? I'm doing great, and uh, it's great to talk to you. I think that you're one of the best in this business. Uh, it's the first time talking to you, but uh, I'm happy to talk to you, and I think you're one of the best. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate um, that. What's going on? 
So I don't want to be like the crazy Jets fan um, and say like, oh, it's this year's Bengals or whatever. But the Jets, this is my team. I got four Jets tattoos. I love this team. And I think what are the four tattoos team, that you have of the Jets? So I have four different Jet logos from, you know, back into the 60s. And gotcha. so, you know, the new. Yeah. So on my legs. I like it. Okay. Anyway, the, the, the point I want to make is I think that this team is better than the Rex Ryan teams talent wise. Um, do you agree? Is it better than the Rex Ryan teams talent wise? Yes. I think if everybody, if, if Brees Hall and AVT didn't go down, I think you could say yes. The guys that are in that lock, here's what I will say, and this is what I've been saying all year. The difference between this team and the Rex Ryan teams, the core of this team, Mike, is young players. It's not the veterans. It's the young players who are the core and really the best players on the team. You know, that was a kind of an older group member. They brought Bart Scott over. Um, you know, you had the veterans on that offensive line. It was a veteran group on the O-line. The running backs were veterans. And that's kind of how they, you know, grounded and pounded to victory. That's the biggest difference I see here is that not to say that that couldn't have been sustainable. And unfortunately for them, they only made the playoffs in those two years. But this could actually go on for a while. And that's how you go about building a team through the draft, developing young talent, you know, putting a premium on that because you want sustainable success. You hear teams preach that all the time, but it's hard to put that plan into place. The Jets hopefully think that they have that and they're on their way to that for years to come. And I also think that our coordinator is better than what we had, even though people give him some, some stuff. But I think he's pretty good, and I think Salah is real good. People are rallying behind him. I think uh, just like the players are rallying behind uh, Rex back then, it's the same thing with Salah. The receipts thing was actually a positive. They respect the hell out of him in that room, Mike, and, and I thank you for the phone call. I think you're spot on with that. They, they love Salah. Every player in that locker room, they love him. Leader. Energetic, enthusiastic, infectious, all those things. They respect the hell out of the guy. And you know, look, when it comes to coaching, that's half the battle. A lot of people think coaching is like it's X's and O's. You got to be this wizard when it comes to schemes and try to outfox the other opponent. All right, that's a part of it. But a lot of it is also just leadership. You know, how are you going to find a way? To make sure that 45 guys, or what is it, 46 guys, however many you dress on Sundays, by the time 1 o'clock rolls around, you got 46 guys that are ready to run through a brick wall for you. That is a big part of coaching. You know, you don't want a situation like you saw last night, where a team comes out and goes through the motions like the Knicks did, and barely give an effort. Well, that would be more egregious than the NFL, because you only play once a week. No excuse for that. But it's also amazing how smart a coach looks when you actually have talented players. Yeah, there's great coaches, but great players make great coaches. There isn't going to be a coach out there who goes and wins consistently with no talent at all on his team. Those are the ones that are going to decide the game nine times out of ten. You can scheme up the perfect play. You can have the perfect play call. You can have a guy wide open down the field. But if your quarterback can't make the throw, if the wide receiver can't catch the ball, if the offensive line doesn't give the quarterback time to execute the throw, then who cares how brilliant the play was? It means nothing, right? 
They got a good mix going there. Really and truly do. Now let's see if they can keep it going here. Eight more games. The baseball hot stove is underway. And you know what? The clock is ticking because we are now, I would say, what, five hours and 20 minutes away from when when players are free to sign with other clubs. So Aaron Judge in a little over five hours from now, could put pen to paper and sign with a team not named the Yankees. Jacob DeGrom, in a little over five hours from now, can put pen to paper and sign with a team not named the New York Mets. Not to say that those are going to happen, necessarily, but that's as soon as it could happen. Now, of course, it won't, and I think these are going to drag out at least for a few more weeks. I I don't think, you know, I was talking about this with someone the other day, I don't think the DeGrom or the Judge cases are going to play out past the new year you know we have the winter meetings again this year remember we haven't had the winter meetings since 2019 it's been a long time because obviously 2020 was still COVID so they didn't have it and last year there was the work stoppage in December we were in the middle of a lockout so we have a full winter meetings when a lot of the movers and shakers do their thing that's when deals get done So that is in December. It's going to be in San Diego, I believe. San Diego. And maybe that's when it gets resolved. Who knows? But I do expect that this is going to be something that will take its time to play itself out. And if you read the comments, hear the comments from one Brian Cashman, specifically, as it pertains to Aaron Judge, can he feel optimistic? Or is he maybe just not tipping his hand one way or the other? with these negotiations with Aaron Judge. Because the Yankees, look, they ran a risk last year. They rolled the dice. They put an offer to Aaron Judge right before the season and take it or leave it. He left it. And he went out there and he had an MVP season. So he said thanks but no thanks to $213 million. And oh, by the way, in still one of the more surreal moments that I've seen involving an executive and his team, over the year, I, I still like to the life of me, I scratch my head that this happened. That the tact that the New York Yankees and Brian Cashman used to go up there and tell the entire world how much money they offered Judge, and that he promptly turned it down to try to save face and make it look like the Yankees are winning the PR war. Like, how, see, the way the Yankees tried to play this thing out publicly. They tried to make it seem like, hey, we're offering $213 million to Aaron Judge. He's the one that turned it down. He's being ungrateful for an injury-prone player, a guy who we have no idea how he's going to perform this year. We would think that $213 million is something that is more than substantial and more than fair. Okay, he didn't take it, so then the Yankees look like the winners, right? But then Judge went out there and laughed in their face all season long. And now he's the one. That controls all the cards here. He's the one that could basically name his price, not just to the Yankees, but to any other team in Major League Baseball that is willing to pay it. And there are some that will. You know, a lot of people are putting two two and two together and have, you know, tried to connect Judge to the San Francisco Giants all season long because he's from there. San Francisco is a team that once upon a time, they've been known to spend money and they will meet a player's price. And Farhan Zaidi, who runs their baseball operations, he said at the winter meet or I keep saying the winter meetings, he said at the GM meetings yesterday that they are not hamstrung in any way, shape, or form when it comes to paying what it takes to net top talent. 
I'm paraphrasing, of course. But is that going to be $330 million? Is it going to be $350 million? I think if you're a Yankee fan, the thing to fear is if the offers are equal, whether it's the Yankees and one other club or two other clubs, if the offers are about equal, is Judge going to just want to remain with the Yankees, stay loyal, and then come back to the pinstripes? Or I think the other thing you have to question is what is it going to take from some other team that is going to completely blow Aaron Judge away with a contract offer which is bigger than the Yankees? Like, does the team have to go $20 million more than what the Yankees are offering? $30 million more? Like, if the Yankees offer Judge eight years... $330 million, which I don't even know if they are going to do. Couldn't even tell you. Okay, that's over $40 million a year. Eight for 330 What is it going to take for a team like, let's, I'm just using San Francisco as an example. What is it going to take from San, for San Francisco to top that and to make Judge go home out west? Is it years? Is it dollars? Is it 350 You know, what happens if he gets that extra year, let's say, and an extra maybe 20 mil. What about nine for 350 versus eight for 330? And he comes back to the Yankees. What does he value more? Years, I mean, there's going to be deferrals in these things. You know that. No matter who he signs with. That's the way they do things nowadays. I always thought all throughout the season the judge was not going anywhere. I did. But now once this process has gotten underway and you're hearing both sides, I don't, I'm just more skeptical. I'm more skeptical. Here's Cashman, by the way. He was asked, and he's not going to, Cashman's not giving you much. He was asked if he's talked recently with Aaron Judge. Uh, no comment. Is that one of your couldn't say, wouldn't say? No, no, that we're early. So just to say that, I'll use that a little later in the interview. And he says he has talked to his representatives. He's kind of revised that. But what about the pursuit of trying to sign Aaron Judge? Involves a lot of people, you know, and ultimately the owner, you know, has to take everything into account because, you know, he checks all the boxes, you know, the box of, you know, does he help you win games on the field first and foremost? And then, you know, will he do so moving forward? There's no guarantee in terms of health or any of these situations, you know, but when you make these commitments on players, he's a fan favorite. He interacts with our fans extremely well. Uh, he's respected within that clubhouse, goes about his business as good as you possibly can, you know, and is an elite performer and one of the game's best, if not the best player. And so uh, with all all that being said, you know, you know, those are the type that you want to retain and, and have. And then lastly, do you want Judge back? Optimally, uh, if you could wave a magic wand, we would secure, you know, Aaron Judge and retain him and have him signed and happy in the fold as soon as possible. As I said at the, the uh, my presser back in New York, that you know he's a free agent, he's earned the right to be a free agent, so he'll di- he'll dictate the dance steps. Given the way the season ended for the Yankees. They got swept. Astros. How are they pivoting from losing Aaron Judge? Really? Like, if if Aaron Judge decides to go to another team, how do Yankee fans kind of just save face after that? I don't really think he cares at all about being named captain either. I don't think he cares about legacy and that side. Aaron Judge wants to be paid. 
You know, I know he said during the season it's not about the money. It is about the money. Because if it wasn't about the money, he would have signed the $213 million contract back in April. Okay, $213 million is plenty for Aaron Judge, for the next five generations of judges to live off of and live comfortably. So it is about the money. It is about being compensated for what you feel you are worth. Now, on the flip side, you got DeGrom and you got the Mets. John Heyman reporting, as of this morning, that Jacob DeGrom has let the Texas Rangers know he's interested in signing there. Okay, now, I need some more context with that, though. Is that DeGrom personally picking up the phone and calling the Rangers and calling Chris Young and saying, I'm interested? Or is that his agents just engaging in dialogue with the organization saying, yeah, you know, we'd be willing to listen. Yeah, there's interest there. Of course there's going to be interest if somebody's going to throw, you know, $45 million a year at you. There's interest anywhere. You know, if there was a station in Antarctica that wanted to throw $45 million in my direction, I'd be interested. I got to get a coat, maybe a little bit stronger coat, but there's interest. So I don't read into that too much, but what I could tell you is that Texas is committed to spending money. And all the reports that are out there that the Mets view the Rangers and the Braves as maybe the threats to where they could lose the Grom to, yeah, I, I think that's fair, but I don't think that's anything unheralded. Like, you could see that coming from a mile away. Take Texas, for example. They got the brand new ballpark still. I say still. I mean, it opened two years ago. And the first year was during COVID, so they lost that whole season in 20. So the park's only been open for a couple of years. A lot of revenue to be had there. Last offseason, they went out there and they signed Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, and they gave them $500 million combined. A half a billion dollars on two middle infielders. And you know what? It blew up in their face, at least last year. They also signed John Gray, but John Gray is not a staff ace. They have no pitching staff right now. They have no rotation. The thought was that maybe they were going to go hot and heavy after Clayton Kershaw because Kershaw's from Dallas. Maybe the end of his career wants to come back home, pitch for the Rangers for a year, and then ride off into the Hall of Fame. It didn't materialize. He stayed with the Dodgers, but I don't know what Kershaw is going to do this offseason. But Clayton Kershaw is also not Jacob DeGrom, right? DeGrom's a much better pitcher at this stage of their careers if he could stay healthy. And then the other thing you have to factor in with the Rangers is that a few weeks ago, remember who they hired to be their new manager? They hired Bruce Bochy. All right, Bruce Bochy was living the good life. He don't have to work anymore. He could sit out there in California, sip his wine, and wait for the Hall of Fame to call in a couple of years so he goes into Cooperstown. You know, at his age, and he's, you know, he's three world championships already, he's got nothing left to prove in baseball. For Bruce Bochy to come out of so-called retirement and take the Texas Rangers job, he did not agree to do that job because it was going to be a rebuild. I'm sure that he got assurances from ownership that this was a team that was going to spend money, that was going to try to win, and he was going to be a big part of it. So yeah, to say that the Rangers have legit interest in Jacob DeGrom, duh. I mean, what do you think? Same thing with the Atlanta Braves. Atlanta represents some place that's a little bit more geographic friendly for Jacob DeGrom. Guy's from Florida, lives in Florida, wants to maybe pitch closer to home. There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. You know the two Florida teams can't afford him, so what's next up? Team in Atlanta. 
And yeah, that would stink in a lot of ways because losing him to a division rival and the team that, let's face it, is still the team to beat in the National League East, that's a problem. And this is where the Mets have to be careful here. This is where they have to be careful. You already missed out on the division last year. And the Braves proved they were the better team. Forget about what happened in the playoffs. I'm just talking about over 162 games. Braves are better than you. The Braves have a young core that's locked up for years to come. And they're not going anywhere. Alex Anthopoulos and his staff down there have done an amazing job of signing all of these guys to team-friendly deals and still having enough left over to still go out and get more talent. And remember, the Braves battled injuries and stuff last year. They weren't even healthy. Albies was in and out of the lineup. Acuna in and out of the lineup. I mean, among others. And they lost Freddie Freeman from the year before. And they still won 101 games and won their division. Braves are not going anywhere. And now you look at the Mets. The Mets are not going to trot the same team back out onto that field that they ended the year with last year. I mean, look at their pitching staff. We were just talking about it during the break. Their pitching staff is going to look dramatically different than it did last year. I mean, their whole damn rotation is a free agent not named Max Scherzer. Every single one of them. The bullpen. Basically, every guy in that bullpen is a free agent not named Edwin Diaz. All right, you got him locked up. Great. What good is Edwin Diaz, though, if you don't have a lead? If you don't have guys that are going to be able to bridge the gap from your starters to the back end of that bullpen, which is something that plagued them last year, despite the fact that they won 101 games. So the tricky part about it for Billy Epler and the Mets is that, yeah, you want the Grom back. And I do think they're being honest when they say so. And I do think that Steve Cohen is going to do all he can to retain Jacob DeGrom. But because of all those other holes that need satisfying if you're the Mets, how long do you let the Jacob DeGrom situation play itself out before you risk losing out on other players that could be signing with other teams? You can't sit there and wait until February for Jacob DeGrom to make up his mind when, by the way, you've got all these other potential targets that you need to maybe think about bringing in because you've got spots to fill. It's going to be an interesting offseason, to say the very least, for these two teams here. It's going to be fun for us, but certainly that news cycle and that hot stove is going to be burning up when you're talking about the Mets and talking about the Yanks, and that's good for a change. Sure beats last year when he had the lockout and there was like nothing going on. The lawyers down in Florida, this guy meeting with this guy, walking across from one uh, room to the next, down at that complex. Oh, enough is enough. Bob Nightingale on stakeout.